Hey everyone, it's good to see you all here, some new faces, some familiar faces. Uh, Keep uh, your Bibles open at Genesis 3 and near the end we'll uh, look at Romans 5 a little bit. There's an episode of Peppa Pig called International Day. Who's seen it? Anyone? A few people. John Pierre's seen it. International Day, it's kind of like Harmony Day. It's a celebrating of multiculturalism and belonging and difference and stuff like that. Well, for International Day on Peppa Pig, Peppa and her friends are all in costumes to represent different countries. The day starts off well, all the countries are getting along, they're playing nicely together. But then things go pear shaped in the sandpit, and that's where we're going to pick it up. There you go. I love the bit where Madame Gazelle asks the kids, Is this how you think the countries of the world behave? And Pepper says, Um, don't they? And Madame Gazelle's response, of course not. It's great satire, isn't it? Uh, Because this is exactly how the countries of the world behave. The arguing and fighting going on in the sandpit, it's like an acted-out parable of what's going on in the world. In the trade war between the US and China, or the aggression of Russia in the Ukraine, or the conflicts between Saudi Arabia and Iran in the Middle East... Peace and harmony in all the world, it's a good desire, isn't it? It's a good thing to want for our world because it's what we're made for. Last week in Genesis 2, we saw the peace and harmony that the first man and the first woman had in the Garden of Eden. They enjoy peace and harmony with God, with one another, and with creation. But this isn't our experience of life in the world, is it? Peace and harmony is something we want, but why is it that we can't seem to achieve it? Why do we keep messing things up, both at the level of world relationships and at the level of our personal relationships? Why do countries keep going to war? Why do the poor continue to be exploited? Why is there so much anger and vitriol spilling out on social media? Why do I spit the dummy when something doesn't go my way? Why do I burn with jealousy or with bitterness against others? The big question, why are we the way we are? Well, the answer is in Genesis 3, where the relationships God made us for are messed up. Because of sin, our relationship with God is messed up. Our relationship to each other or with each other is messed up. And our relationship with creation itself is messed up. See, there's a complete reversal of God's good order of relationships that you see in Genesis 2. Harmony gives way to disharmony. Peace makes way for conflict. We'll start with our relationship with God. At the end of Genesis 2, the man and the woman enjoy a relationship of total dependence on the God who made them. And if you were here last week, you would have seen that. But in Genesis 3, total dependence gives way to independence. 
We're still in the Garden of Eden. Have Genesis 3 open in front of you. We're still in the Garden of Eden, but it's a new scene. And in this new scene, we're introduced to a new character in the story, the serpent. Now, the serpent will be instrumental in the move from dependence to independence. See, he's not just any serpent. Look at verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. More crafty. He's got guile. He's the most cunning of all the animals that God made. And he uses his guile to try to tempt the woman that God had made away from her total dependence on God. The serpent said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? But the woman corrects him, doesn't she? Verse 2 and 3. She says, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. At first glance, it looks like she's depending on God's word. She corrects the serpent. Remember the two trees in the middle of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, she says that they're not allowed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she's right about that. But there are two big hints in what she reports of a move going on from dependence to independence. Number one, she's added an extra rule You must not touch it, she says. But God never said that. He said, you must not eat from it. You see the difference there? Number two, she's watered down the consequence. She says, or you will die. But that's not exactly what God said, is it? What God said packs a bit more of a punch than that. God said, you will surely die. If the man and the woman were totally depending on God, if they were trusting his word, these are the details that they should remember. And it's worth asking ourselves, isn't it, to what extent are we depending on God's word? Are we tempted to go beyond God's word? Or are there parts that we water down, the inconvenient bits the stuff we find hard to trust as part of God's good plan. Maybe we're a bit like the woman in the garden and and we wonder, is the Lord really good? Is he a bit of a killjoy, perhaps? Now, the serpent latches onto these seeds of doubt and he tries to convince the woman that she can't, in fact, trust God. Verse 4, he says, you will not certainly die. See, the serpent adds in that consequence the emphasis. He says, you will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's saying God's wrong. He's saying God's lying to you about the dying. But not only that, he's got selfish reasons for it. Do you notice how the serpent goes about his business here? He doesn't just turn up and say, Hi, I'm Satan and I'm here to ruin your life. Hi, I'm Satan and I'm, I'm out to get you killed. He doesn't do that. 
He's cunning. He's crafty. He sows seeds of doubt about the goodness of God while all the time looking like he's out to benefit her. He promises the same things that God does, life and blessing. But he outrageously suggests that there's a way of gaining those things independently from God. And it works. The woman's deceived. They won't be dependent on God to learn good and evil anymore. They'll be able to decide for themselves. And this move from dependence to independence finds its full expression, doesn't it, in the act of disobedience. This one act of disobedience that would change everything. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband. Where's he been? Who was with her? And he ate it. See, the fruit's no longer just desirable to look at. It's desirable to possess and to take. And so in disobedience, she takes it and she eats it. And so does the man who's been there the whole time. Where's he been, though, in terms of action, in terms of exercising his responsibility? You might remember in chapter 2 that it's him originally that's given the word of command by God. He should know better. But he abdicates his responsibility, he fails to challenge the serpent and he follows his wife into sin, doing what he knows God has told them not to do. All without a word or a question. In their act of disobedience, the man and the woman have essentially committed treason. That's what this is. See, it's more than just being a bit naughty. They've fronted up to the one and only God who made it all and they've told him, you're not in charge anymore, we're in charge. They eat the fruit. Then verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The serpent's promises, they seem to have come true. But not in the way that the man and the woman were hoping for. All they know is their nakedness, their guilt and their shame. It doesn't take long, does it, for God's good creation to turn against him. Seven verses it took for us to mess up our relationship with God. The man and the woman enjoyed an unhindered relationship with their Creator where there was life and blessing and goodness. But soon they'll be driven out of that garden of life and blessing and goodness, away from God's life-giving presence. This is why we are the way we are. Because this is what we all do, all the time. How have you sinned today? Might be something no one else saw. Could have been something that just happened in your mind, a thought. How have you sinned today? 
See, Genesis 3 tells the story of the first man and the first woman sinning for the first time. But Genesis 3 isn't just about the first time someone sins. Genesis 3 is about every time someone sins. We're not meant to read this and just say, far out, Adam and Eve were stupid. They were. But the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, they represent us. They represent us to ourselves. They're like a mirror of what we're all like. See, what played out in the garden plays out every time we sin. In Matthew 15, Jesus talks about how evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, lying, slander, it's a pretty extensive list, they all come from within. See, there's temptation that comes from outside ourselves, but sin is also born from within. The sinful heart is a heart that's turned in on itself, away from God the Creator and those he made us for relationship with and for ourselves, towards ourselves, where perfectly good desires turn into selfish desires. We are made by God with desires. When we, when we need food, we get hungry. It's a good thing that God made us to have hunger. When we eat food, it has a taste. Some foods taste nice, which is good. Others don't. But, see, there's nothing wrong with going and eating morning tea after church. Now, that's not sin. But it is if you want to get to the morning tea table first to get the best stuff and shove your face with it. That is sin. Our perfectly good desire for hunger and for something that tastes good becoming selfish. See, when our desires are distorted, when they break away from God's good boundaries that he's designed them to be expressed within perfectly freely, when we seek independence from God and decide for ourselves what is good, what is right and what is wrong, things go pear-shaped. Sin, by definition, is against God. So it messes up our relationship with him. But it also messes up our relationship with one another. Before sin, the man and the woman enjoy a relationship of interdependence with one another. They're a unit. They feel what is lacking in the other. But in Genesis 3, interdependence gives way to disunity. That interdependent bond of unity is broken. A wedge is now between them. There's now shame. We touched on that in verse 7. They had nothing to hide from each other and, and nothing to fear from one another, but now shame and fear enter into their relationship and poison it from the inside. You might have noticed a temporary fix is attempted. Maybe Maybe they hoped they could one day regain what was lost by covering themselves with the leaves. But it's hopeless. The relationship that had brought such joy is already under strain before they finish eating. That's the shame. But perhaps the disunity finds its full expression in unhealthy competition now in relationships. 
In verse 16, God tells the woman, this is part of the consequences of sin, part of his judgment, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. See, this verse is getting at the fact there are now power plays in relationships. The man and the woman now see each other as competitors. They see one another as objects to be taken and used for their own advantage. See, Darwin's theory of natural selection only gets so far, doesn't it? Competition for resources, survival of the fittest... It's not just a natural thing, it's moral. It comes from sin. See, the particular focus here is on the marriage relationship and on on the competition there and on the conflict that many of us, whether married or not, will know all too well. The woman is now sinful and will want her husband's God-given position of authority. The man is now sinful and will be prone to misuse his position of authority to get what he wants, rather than to lovingly and gently serve his wife. But Genesis 3 doesn't just signal unhealthy competition in the marriage relationship. All relationships in society will be impacted. There's competition in the family. Siblings compete with each other for the approval of their parents, for their parents' attention. And it seems to be something that we don't just grow out of. Stay tuned for Genesis 4 next week. There's competition at school. Competition gets savage in social circles, doesn't it? To raise your your social status or just to get noticed even, there's pressure to fake a personality or to compromise your own values or to cut people down to bring you up. There's competition at work for pay, promotions, etc. And I don't know much about economics and I'm sure that there's a healthy competition that drives economics and all that kind of thing, but surely when we just view one another in competitive terms, that this person, rather than a person made by God in his image that has a story of their own, they're just a competitor of mine for these things, surely that's not a good thing. There's competition on social media as well, isn't there? To get the most followers, the most likes, the most comments. By God's grace, and this is important too, goodness, generosity and self-sacrifice can break through into our relationships. And that's a great thing. And there are things to be enjoyed and that are present in our relationships. But... Because of sin, everything is marred, isn't it? We are the way we are because of sin. I am the way I am and you are the way you are because we're people who keep making a mess of our relationships, aren't we? Our relationship with God is messed up. Our relationship with each other is messed up. Finally, our relationship with creation is messed up. Before sin, the man and the woman enjoy God's good order of relationships. And that order is seen in our God-given role as rulers under him, isn't it? But in Genesis 3, human rule gives way 
to death's rule. Humanity now lives under the power of death. Remember what humanity was meant to do in chapter 1, verse 28, the work of filling and subduing the earth, of multiplying, of bringing the earth under control. Well, under the power of death, verse 16, filling the earth, multiplying, pumping out babies is excruciatingly painful. Obviously, I don't know that pain as much as some of you do. But that's what it says here in Genesis 3. Under the power of death, verse 17 and 18, subduing the earth, bringing order to the chaos, is relentlessly toilsome and frustrating now. See, this is a picture of humanity essentially failing in its assignment already. It's not humanity that rules the earth anymore. Death rules the earth now. Sin brings punishment, and the punishment is ultimately death. And this is what awaits Adam and Eve when they are expelled from the garden. Without life, without God as the source of life, only death follows. Sin leads to death. It's uncomfortable for us, isn't it, to think through this and to take this to heart? Because, you see, it's easy to say that mass murder leads to death. That's obvious. But gossip is sin. So gossip leads to death. Lust is sin. So lust leads to death. Violence is sin. So violence leads to death. Lying is sin. Greed is sin. All sin leads to death. And if sin leads to death, we need to defeat sin, don't we? That's what we need. And I reckon we have two options. Number one, we can do it ourselves. But do you see in Genesis 3 any hope of achieving this? Do you see in the world any hope of achieving this? We are already outside the garden. We can't do it ourselves. Option number two, we can have someone do it for us. Now, in Genesis 3, there are hints of this happening. Number one, God clothes them. Did you notice that? We might expect God to strike them dead right there and then, but he covers their nakedness in a moment of compassion. This is grace from God. But more than that, even though they've just committed treason against their Creator, God promises that He will still act for the benefit of humanity over Satan. There is hope for a hero to come and crush the serpent. Verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. This is God speaking. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is God speaking to the serpent. And there's hope here that the promised seed or the promised offspring of the woman will be victorious over Satan and over the serpent through suffering. Here in Genesis 3, 
Have you ever wondered why there's so many genealogies in the beginning of Genesis and through Genesis and through the whole Bible? Well, it all starts here with this promised offspring from Eve's womb. It all starts here with this note of hope. Salvation begins in Genesis 3. There's hope that even when we reject God, God doesn't reject us. There's hope that he doesn't abandon us to ourselves, to our temptations, to our desires. And we know this for certain, don't we? Because he didn't abandon his son, the Christ, Jesus, who we read about in Romans 5, the second Adam. See, after Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden, the promise-making God faithfully gets to work. And he works through the history of the world with his promises to arrive at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, another garden. Jesus' words here are the opposite of those implied by Adam. See, when Adam ate the fruit, he effectively said to God, not your will, but mine be done. But now outside of Eden, in another garden, sin and death are on the verge of being defeated. Why? Because Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, prays this, not my will, but yours be done. See the difference? Adam, not your will, but mine be done. That declaring of independence. Jesus, not my will, but yours be, ta- yours be done. That declaration of dependence on his Father and his plan for the salvation of the world. See, in the end, it was, it was only Jesus who prayed this prayer. He faced the horror of his imminent death for sinners alone while his disciples slept. His disciples, along with those he came to save, might have abandoned Jesus to death. But though humanity abandoned the Son, abandoned the second Adam, God the Father didn't. He raised him from the dead. And do you see what this means? We read about it in Romans 5. Death no longer reigns. Death no longer rules. Instead, Jesus Christ rules in grace. That's what Paul says in Romans 5. Just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Even though we are the way we are, God is still for us in Jesus Christ. This means that through faith in his death and resurrection, we share in his life. It means that Satan is crushed. It means that God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. It means that God has undone what the man and the woman did in Genesis 3. It means that God has undone whatever it is you have done today or will do tomorrow or have done yesterday. And whatever you go on to do for the rest of your conflicted and confusing life as we all live, God God will undo it. Sin is no more. Death is no more. Why are we like we are? Well, Genesis 3 answers that question because of sin. But I reckon the better question is this. Since we are like we are, what hope do we have? 
Genesis 3 begins the answer to that question. Nothing breaks the power of sin and death except the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. For if by the one man, for if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more has the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many? We're going to close by praying together. We're going to pray the way that Jesus taught us to pray or taught his followers to pray. And if you want to pray this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, then please pray it out loud together with your brothers and sisters here this morning. This is something Christians have done together for centuries. And what we're praying is that God would rule and that God would reign that he would forgive us our sin and that he wouldn't abandon us to our temptations but would deliver us from evil.